0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Ben Katcher has carved out a unique literary territory documenting the architectural and cultural oddities of New York City and his comics and books like Julius Knipple, Real Estate Photographer, The Cardboard Valise*, and The Jew of New York. In his latest book, The Dairy Restaurant, he examines the history of the Jewish dairy restaurants that were a ubiquitous feature of the city's landscape for most of the 20th century, and now have all but disappeared. In the process, he explores the broader question of how we decide what to eat and where. It's published by Schocken, and I'm very pleased to welcome Ben Catcher to our show now. Hello, Ben.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm okay. Um, although, you know, I would love to be able to go to a restaurant. Um
1: isn't yeah people it's um i think thinking about restaurants i've been thinking about vanished restaurants for the past 10 years so
0: uh well there's going to be a lot more vanishing as a result of this pandemic but isn't your book something of a departure for you partly because of its length some 500 pages but also its reliance on historical research
1: was yeah, it your it, goal uh, to
0: write a definitive history of, of dairy restaurants?
1: Uh, to try at least to write a broad outline of the history. And it's a text image book, but it doesn't, in parts it functions like a comic strip, but most of it functions more as an illustrated text. I mean, there's, there are pictures on every page, uh, but the setup is not uh, the mechanism of a comic strip.
0: And instead of uh, fanciful places of the sort that you created in the past, like the Asylum for Pretzel Addicts or the Institute for Soup Nut Research, this is mostly about places that actually existed, and you include visual proof, menus, ads, matchbooks, and the like.
1: Right. Uh, Yeah, I I try to keep this clearly away from historical fiction which is a complicated thing to do when you're including handmade drawings, which are kind of reconstructions of the past. But that's the tone I wanted to keep. Yeah, uh, until we get into the mythological period, uh, you know, in the ancient world, uh, I think most of this is documented. And uh, my take on it, I mean, it's all... An individual's understanding of history so I had to come to terms with a lot of my um, ignorance of this vast history that goes back to the Garden of Eden.
0: And uh, we'll get to that in a moment but yeah. you you're right that people advise you to get an army of grad students to help you with the research did you do that or is this mostly no, no,
1: that's how a professional historian would have to approach this because the subject is so vast and it, and it covers many languages, many cultures. No one is a specialist on all of these things. But no, I did it by myself. I mean, I, I talked to people, I interviewed people, and I um, consulted lots of historical documentation. But mainly, I think I explained in the book the approach is the, the millistic sticker approach. In other words, the dairy or ruminative approach to any problem is to think about it a lot and to uh, see what comes up when you do that kind of un, unlimited uh, thought.
0: I'm assuming that... You, that you found stuff at the New York Public Library? Do they have a, a collection of artifacts, or are there other places? Uh, uh,
1: they have a big menu collection, but that person didn't uh, concentrate on Jewish working-class restaurants. So that's a generally across the board. Most of recorded history is not about the working class. Uh, that's, a, that's a recent phenomenon, people talking about um, these sort of restaurants. So a lot of this wasn't documented and it's the hints I pick up matchbooks and some postcards uh, and mentions through all the kinds of genealogical research somebody would do to piece together a history. Uh, but, but these restaurants were not even tourist destinations, so there's not a lot of postcards, or that kind of memorabilia.
0: Reviews in the New York Times?
1: Uh, almost never. Back, you know, by the sixties, uh, Milton Glazer did a, a column in New York Magazine where he'd visit ethnic restaurants. And then there was some, people started to write about these places. But going back to the beginning of the 20th century, and there was not much, uh, uh, the only writing would be about people slumming on the Lower East Side, going to uh, Romanian wine cellars or Hungarian cafes. Uh, but those would be kind of—they um, tend to be the the meat restaurants, the upper the upper scale of that of that kind of ethnic restaurant. So dairy restaurants, even in that in that journalistic world were kind of ignored uh,
0: and so how did you find these people who ran and worked at these restaurants and were well, they happy to talk about their experiences did they tell you things that that so, surprised you
1: sure I started thinking about interviewing people who were involved in um, Jewish and Yiddish language culture on the Lower East Side back in the Seventies and eighties, and I started contacting people not just restaurateurs but other people and um, So some of the interviews go back that far mm. uh, Most of these people are no longer living So I talked to children uh, children of waiters and children of owners um, and so uh Um, But it's interesting how much you could piece together. Some of them were really
0: big uh, at one point, like Ratner's, which was on Delancey Street, uh, and then suddenly disappeared. It was a major institution for a time.
1: Yeah, I I go into, I mean, I encountered these places on their last legs. I mean, this this was in its heyday in the 20s, 30s, and so by the 60s and 70s, a lot of these places were uh, on their way out. And uh, that's a big part of the history. Uh, These people didn't want their children to follow in their footsteps because running a hands-on restaurant was an enormous amount of work. You know, being up at dawn getting a full menu of food ready. Um, And so their children were not encouraged to go into the business. That's one reason they uh, disappeared. The other reason is uh, people became very aware of eating high-fat foods, uh, you know, sour cream and uh, farmer's cheese and things like that. Uh, And then I mean, by by the Second World War, a large part of the Eastern European population of Jews were uh, were murdered. Uh, so that that's another factor in this whole history of Eastern European Jewish food.
0: So, Did you have uh, a, a little neighborhood joint that you were a regular at? You you say that you met your wife at at B and H Dairy on on Second Avenue in the the East Village.
1: Yeah, I I ate there a lot uh, before I'd go out, you know, for the evening. That was a place I'd eat very often. Uh, And, you know, by that time, there weren't many dairy restaurants left. So I I liked the the Diamond Dairy. That was a little place on a mezzanine level in the Diamond Exchange on 47th Mm -hmm. Street. But that wasn't my neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, I lived cl- I lived down near Wall Street, uh, and there was a place uh, briefly existed uh, down there. Um, but it's called the Dairy Planet. It was in a basement uh, space. So, but there weren't. Uh, you know, as I said, this whole history about trying to reconstruct a vanished restaurant culture. So um, so in part that's why I think I went back to the beginnings of the idea of eating out or you know, not eating at home and that whole history. So how you begin you, with how, the
0: Garden of Eden which yeah, you mentioned earlier. How,
1: how Jews especially ones who were trying to observe dietary law, how they dealt with that It comes up a lot in stories and uh, accounts of people who had to travel for business. Where would they eat? And the dairy end of the food spectrum was safer because you didn't need um, rabbinically sanctioned food if you ate dairy. As long as you were sure the milk or cheese was from a cow... It was okay. And then vegetables and grains were fine as long as they were not infested with insects. You didn't need a ritual
0: slaughterer.
1: So staying in the cows, cows,
0: but not goat milk? Not sheep's milk?
1: You could drink uh, any milk from a kosher animal. Mm -hmm. That's an animal that chews its cud and has a split hoof. Mm -hmm. So you could drink goat's milk. Um, or sheep's milk. Yeah, and sheep's milk. There and some, nobody
0: drinks pig's milk anyway, so it
1: no, wouldn't really— No, initially. that's not a big—but people, you know, historically people drink camel milk and even horse's milk. But huh. but in the, in the um, history of dairy restaurants, a lot of this milk was consumed in the form of cheese and uh, yogurt and sour milk. And kefir, clabbered milk, which has a lower uh, lactose content, because apparently Ashkenazi Jews have a, a high incidence of lactose intolerance. But uh, but that never stopped them from eating these things. And you know, suffering Eastern European food was heavy, and suffering after a meal was part of. That's how you knew you had you ate. Remember bromo seltzer, the sure. on the walls of every uh, luncheonette? That
0: mm-hmm.
1: was the chaser after your lunch, was a bromo seltzer. <laughs> so uh, the idea of, of not having indigestion was unheard of.
0: I'm speaking with Ben Catcher, whose latest book is called The Dairy Restaurant, and it is published by and This is Lopate at Large on... WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. Getting back to the, the Garden of Eden, do you uh, was the serpent the first waiter to steer a customer to a dish that uh, he didn't want to order?
1: Well, I tried to look at that whole idea of these. Uh, the Garden of Eden is modeled after kind of a Persian pleasure, you know, a walled pleasure garden. And these places were owned by someone, and they were places where you might eat a fig. You know, in the Middle East, it wasn't an apple; it was a fig that, that this whole story is about. And um, this kind of intermediary between the unseen owner and the, the person dining, and all of these kind of attributes, you know, sayings. But to someone, this, if you eat this food, you will die, or you will, um, you know, this is the food of knowledge. These foods would have attributes that seem to me to echo the whole idea of this later um, health food uh, mm-hmm. kind of restaurant. And so, um, and then they end up being thrown out.
0: Yeah, the first couple to be they, thrown out of a restaurant for bad behavior.
1: Yeah, and this whole thing seemed to be a kind of prototype of the relationship that people have with restaurants. I mean, I I really like restaurants because they are, I think it was somewhere Kafka said this, I don't think he wrote it, but someone noted him saying this, that he likes restaurants because they're like a party, a social gathering where no one is beholden to the host because you're paying for your food. You can leave whenever you want, and no one won't be offended. And you can eat whatever you want if it's a restaurant with a menu. And so there's something very pleasant about that situation. It doesn't have all the the pressures of a private party.
0: You go through the biblical stories, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, and you say that Abraham operated an inn for travelers. Was, was that uh, another early restaurant?
1: Well, I think in the ancient um, world in the Middle East, in these sort of desert environments, that kind of hospitality was just a human part of human behavior. If you saw somebody approach your tent, you took them in and offered them food. They could stay with you. So this kind of um, impulse toward uh, hospitality, is, I think, was part of the culture of people living in this inhospitable environment. And uh, it, it, it's been somewhat diluted now. Restaurants became businesses. And so the, um, the, the hospitality aspect uh, became moderated by the idea that somebody's really Are they they doing this because they love to feed people? And how big a part does that play in wanting to run a restaurant? Uh, And how much is uh, just another business? I I don't think it can just be a business. Restaurants that are run purely as businesses are kind of dismal places.
0: That's why it's called hospitality. Isn't it? Is why they call it hospitality rather than, uh, well.
1: The um, hospitality business, yeah. yeah. Well, the other, I think, big uh, attraction for me of these, these restaurants were not only that they were the tail end of Eastern European culture that had been transplanted to New York, but they were the tail end of... A working class or lower middle class Jewish culture, and in other words, all of these people wanted their children to go into professions and not be part of the working class. And I, I think that had some pretty uh, unfortunate consequences. Um, you know, I think it's it's not it's not a Jewish thing. It's all. Yeah. Um, Immigrant uh, groups aspire for their children to have what they think will be an easier life or to somehow join the leisure class.
0: On the other hand, uh, today we celebrate uh, food institutions that go back a number of, of generations, uh, like like Russian Daughters and DiPaolo's, which I think yeah. are in their fourth generations now.
1: Yeah, the, you know, that these places survived is kind of uh, miraculous. There are not many of them, and that any of them survived is kind of uh, surprising. It would always be like the failed child in the family <laughs> who might take over the business because they couldn't go to college, you know. But. No. Uh, but the, uh, this impulse to sort of leave the working class, um, because of the, the hardships involved in that kind of life, uh, led us to a um, you know these endless upward aspirations to not do any work, maybe you know the most immaterial kind of occupations, and. Um, And to tweet a lot
0: and to play golf.
1: Yeah, I mean, the epitome of that is, uh, you know, a Brooklyn Jewish guy, Howard Schultz, who came out of the working class, who opened, somehow took the idea of a a coffee shop, which is, you know, a kind of really uh, simple, uh, it's not even as complicated as running a restaurant, and by magnifying it into this multi-million dollar industry sort of took the whole heart out of what a, what a nice cafe would be. You can't just multiply or industrialize the idea of a, a place where people want to go to eat and think it'll be um, appealing anymore. So it's a you know, kind of place I would walk a mile to avoid. Going into a Starbucks. It's it's just devoid of all. um, I mean, these old restaurants, people describe them as an extension of their homes. They said, I kept my restaurant cleaner than my own home. And I had this, I was there with a hands-on pride in the way the food was served. And if I had to use hired help in the kitchen, that had to be highly um, managed. I had to be there to watch what they were doing. And the minute you get a hands-off or an absentee um, business, especially in the realm of food, uh, you're just in for trouble, especially when it's magnified on this insane scale where you have hundreds of thousands of cookie-cutter copies. It's impossible to maintain the thing that people like about a cafe, that there's a human element. The owner is there and they make the coffee for you, and uh, you know how these little cafes work in France and Italy. Uh, so this impulse, this, um, which people think is kind of normal to better yourself or to move out of a working class, It has a lot of downsides. I think the aesthetics that are brought about through poverty um, and the limitations, you can only own, no person could run more than one or two branches of a restaurant. And uh, those limitations, I think, are what made these places appealing. And they were all completely idiosyncratic Designs, you know, they, the the owner came up with the way the place would be designed, and uh, they were all kind of unique. And they, and the um, and so I think that's part of what this book is trying to um, document: the loss yeah. of that.
0: But you also you, you mentioned the kosher laws, uh, uh, the uh, prescribed, uh, prescribing against eating pork and shellfish which many people speculate was tied to illnesses that are associated with those foods, especially uh, in a, uh, the hot climates of the, the Middle East. It's one of the reasons the kosher laws also insist that you eat meat within just a few days after it's been butchered. Uh, but might there have been a health reason for separating meat and dairy? Because we're talking about dairy restaurants here, yeah. uh, which do not, did not serve any meat.
1: Well, these were two, I explained in the book that these milk and the meat industry were two very separate kinds of guilds. And one of the laws of milking is that as soon as the milk leaves the cow, you want to get it away from the animal because um, things can fall off the animal out of their hair, uh, bacteria and things like that. So uh, it's a very basic um, aspect of the milk industry is how quickly you can separate that liquid from the proximity of the animal. And so these two businesses developed very differently, the the idea of people who dealt with the uh, slaughtering of animals and the people who just dealt with the milking of animals and then the processing of that milk. But in, um, you know, in Jewish law, according to uh, Orthodox rabbis, that these dietary laws are not something uh, within human reason to unravel, uh, and they they sit in that they're kind of laws that have been given to us, and we shouldn't try to figure out or come up with medical reasons for them. They're just um, observances that a human being should make.
0: You also look at the history of vegetarianism, which uh, some people do see as connected to health issues. Um, was it generally practiced for spiritual, political reasons, or for health uh, reasons?
1: Well, both. Um, some, some people see Jewish dietary law as a kind of uh, a version of vegetarianism or a modified vegetarianism. In other words, in order to eat everything but meat, there's not much of an obstacle. To eat meat, you have to go through a complex uh, ritual, slaughtering and then handling of the meat. So it would would cut down on meat-eating. But these dairy restaurants overlap with the history of vegetarian restaurants in that they were amenable to vegetarians because most of the menu had no meat. It would have fish, but no meat. And there was an entire Yiddish uh, vegetarian movement and magazines about vegetarianism. So um, a lot of that, I think, could be traced back to this Jewish interest in uh, Leo Tolstoy and his adoption of vegetarianism. Uh, and the other the other angle is that, uh, at, before the industrialization of meat production, uh, the idea of eating meat was associated with the affluent, and so um, vegetarianism, or subsisting on a non-meat diet, was seen as a form of solidarity with the working class and the poor. So there's
0: that angle, too. Um, Well, vegetarians uh, uh, still include dairy and eggs in their diets. Uh, They can have honey. But but vegans, uh, veganism has just come up uh, as a a very popular alternative now. They eat no animal products, whatever, not even honey.
1: Yeah. So to a vegan, these distinctions between dairy and meat You know, they're kind of just quaint, ancient, uh, distinct... They're thinking about the damage done to the world by industrial scale meat and milk production, which, you know, is undeniable. That's a a, um, a kind of 20th century phenomenon, the, the scale of production of these things. But, you know, going back to the Middle Ages, there was a big difference between the person who mainly ate vegetables and dairy and the person who ate meat. People thought, you know, you are what you eat, and if you ate a lot of meat, you would have a more appetitive personality. And if you mainly subsisted on dairy and vegetables and fruit, you would have a, a more um, pastoral personality, less, uh, less appetitive um, so those things, you know, to a vegan, those looking at the modern production of food, those are kind of uh, obsolete ideas.
0: When did the the first dairy restaurants open in New York? Did they did that coincide well, with the influx of immigrants from Europe in in the nineteenth century?
1: Yeah, well, in New York, the late nineteenth century. Um, I think the earliest ones I mention are around. 1898, 1895. But it goes back to Europe. And and there was a worldwide phenomenon of dairy-based eating places. It exists in every culture that has dairy products. So there's the French cremerie, the German and Austrian uh, milch hall. It's...
0: um, Poland had the... a very difficult one to pronounce Oksania,
1: yeah those are kind of the, the Polish word for dairy and are a lot they, of are them they exist- similar to each other well they were similar in that they all partook of this pastoral impulse to um, to eat uh, non-meat di- uh, menus or to serve a non-meat menu when they fell into the hands of Jews this question of dietary observance came up so in other words uh, an austrian milk hall would serve fresh milk and also ham sandwiches and there was no issue same with most of these polish dairy places the ones run by jews if they were concerned with dietary law would would limit it to to, um, dairy and people there was a famous uh, dairy. It was actually called a Milchhal, Friedman's in Chernovitz, which was a an interesting city in Romania with a large Jewish population. And that, that one is pretty well documented because it lasted up until the Second World War. And um, it was a very cosmopolitan city with a university and all sorts of art uh, institutions. And so people thought about that place. And so people told me there were at least 10 other
0: dairy restaurants
1: in that city. So these are really hard to find much information about. And they're not, they're even less well documented than the ones in America. But, uh, and the other thing about history is the people who opened Uh, these Jewish dairy restaurants in New York may not have known anything about this European history so history doesn't work in a absolute linear fashion they came to New York there was a kind of American dairy lunch or luncheonette
0: an alternative to a saloon
1: well what was that
0: alternatives to saloons people right
1: right. these were who didn't want to have alcohol at lunch yeah, they were tied into the temperance movement and the idea that you didn't go for your free lunch at a saloon. And there were dozens of these places around the turn of that the uh, last century. And so this clearly had some influence on the Jewish dairy restaurant. They, they Because the Jewish dairy restaurant About 20 or 25% of the menu could be traced to Eastern European cuisine, things like blintzes and cold borscht with sour cream. Um, But a a large part of the menu overlapped with um, American luncheonettes, in other words, sandwiches, tuna fish sandwiches, all kinds of salads, um, vegetable soups. So there was definitely um, an overlap in menus uh, between these the American dairy lunch and the um, Eastern European uh, dairy restaurant in New York. And some of them used the Go name. Ahead. Yeah, some of them used, you know, the B&H is called the dairy lunch. So they were using the name of this restaurant. Uh, this American kind
0: of institution. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. get right back to my conversation with Ben Katcher, talking about his book, The Dairy Restaurant. But first, I need to ask you something very important. Have you become a member of WBAI yet? We, we broadcast this show on weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. for free on the honor system. We don't take ads or money from foundations in the hope that uh, anyone who can afford to support the show and the station will. And, and that allows us to be uh, totally independent Uh, No, nobody's going to call us and say you can't do that. Uh, If you've been relying on the generosity of your fellow listeners, this is a good time to step up. Uh, And uh, it's also the time, a time when we need you more than ever to step up and and donate. It's up to you to keep community radio alive in New York City and to keep this show, Leonard It's at Large, coming to you every week. Uh, But the way to do that is by calling right now. 516-620-3602 516-620-3602 or by going to our website give2wbai.org and making a contribution of any amount you feel comfortable with. But one great way to support this station is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month, whatever amount they feel comfortable with, uh, and that allows us to maintain cash flow even in rough times like these when we've been hit economically by the pandemic. Perhaps you'd like to join me for a video conferencing dinner. (coughs) Excuse me. We have just three spots left for something we're calling my dinner with Leonard, where 10 listeners will join me for a private conversation. You can ask me anything you'd like about my 43 years of radio, and you'll also have a chance to, to meet some of your fellow listeners. There are only a few spots left, so... We hope you'll call us right now, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give2wbai.org. Uh, I am looking forward to meeting some of you. I always enjoy that. It's a great way to support the station and have some fun at the same time. And although technically we won't actually be eating dinner, maybe some of us will bring have some snacks or hors d'oeuvres, but I would be delighted to discuss food what dishes you've been cooking lately or what restaurants you're most eager to return to after this whole thing is over. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or you can go to our website, give2wbai.org. And, and one last time, if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, you'll have the option of attending the, the teleconference with me that we're calling my dinner with Leonard. And uh, from all of us at our station, Thank you if you do, and if you don't, well, I, I'm not gonna uh, guilt trip you or anything. Uh, we're back with Ben Catcher, who was the first cartoonist to receive a MacArthur Fellowship, and his latest book is The Dairy Restaurant, published by Schocken. You've also included a kind of a, a history of restaurants in, in this book. Um, restaurants in general, uh, not just dairy restaurants,
1: well, I wanted to um, sort of describe the dairy restaurant by talking about all of the other kinds of restaurants that existed around it. In other words, what the dairy restaurant wasn't like. And that's why I get into the early history of other Jewish restaurants in New but, York. But the
0: first, the first restaurant was started in Paris in 1770, 1766 by a man named Mathurin Rose de... To um, It wasn't a Jewish restaurant.
1: No, no. It that was, was the
0: first commercial establishment to serve well, food?
1: There's a great historian of that, Rebecca Strang. Uh, there's a book called The Invention of the Restaurant. And uh, the innovation there was always public eating and taverns and um, eating places in the world for travelers that existed. But what you were served was one, the dish of the day. And the innovation...
0: And there was, was communal seating as well.
1: Yeah, everybody sat together, right? And the innovation of the restaurant was that people sat at separate tables and could order from a menu of, of dishes that kind of the thing they felt like eating or what they thought biologically they needed that day. And these were very, um, highly refined dishes, uh, broths and, uh, the essence of things, easily digested, and they were called restaurants. The actual name for these kinds of dishes is the name of the, the place that we use today. So, you know, the dairy restaurant, as a restaurant, I mean, it's part, couldn't exist without that history. And, uh, restaurants, spread very quickly all over Europe, because they were seen as this forward-looking kind of eating establishment, uh, where people had a, an element of uh, freedom to eat what they wanted to eat. Uh, and so in the poorest shtetl in Eastern Europe, you'd see on postcards, you know, the uh, Champs d'Elysée restaurant. <laughs> and. Uh, there's a funny story by Shalom Alechem about one of these restaurants where they really were out of food. They were basically a poverty-stricken restaurant, but they wanted to keep up the the appearance of being a restaurant. and they went through the uh, you know, the uh, ritual of what would you like and showing someone a menu, but they had nothing but herring left to serve this man. So, uh, the restaurant as, a, as an institution, um, you know, w- when it went beyond its early kind of uh, medicinal purposes as a, as a kind of curative food, went on to uh, conquer the world as an eating idea.
0: And it's one true. of Sholom Aleichem's most famous characters was Tevya, the, the Dairyman, uh, the basis of the musical Fiddler on the Roof.
1: Right. He had another very less known dairy uh, character named Yussel Kotek, who was uh, a man, sort of a, uh, a Luftmensch who ended up running one of these dairy restaurants in Warsaw. And he was an obsessive schemer and planner, he, he spent his days planning organizations to help uh, in, in the Jewish community in Warsaw. And nothing came of this. It was all, he, he loved to live in this moment, this moment of planning something, but couldn't really see these things through. And uh, it's an—it's inter- kind of the epitome of what I would call the milichtic personality, the ruminative, out-of-control rumination and sort of not having a foot in the uh, practical world. Uh, There's a Yiddish expression, er bleibt auf der miliche bank, means he he remains on the dairy uh, bench or counter. Somebody who doesn't really partake in the world. So, uh, yeah, it's So less. He's also based on a real person, uh, a, a man in um, in Warsaw that uh, who shalom um, Alechem met. So he okay. met him through his book, actually.
0: Now, a number yeah, of back. the stories you tell here, I'd never heard before. For example, the milk cure for tuberculosis. What did that and ent- 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 entail? Did did patients actually ingest nothing but milk for several weeks because they had tuberculosis?
1: Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing about milk. It's a, it's a perfect culture for all kinds of bacterial and viral growth because of it, what it is as a substance. But in the um, early 19th and mid, even, it goes back, I think, to the 18th century, the idea that you could reset somebody's diseased body by bringing them back to a diet of their first fu- food, which was milk, and in certain theories, it had to be the milk from cows that grazed on a certain alpine pasture, and that's the beginning of the health resort and the you know the spa. So it was either curative water at a spa like the Marienbad, or you could go on a milk where you would drink uh, yeah you would uh, subsist on, on milk for several weeks in various quantities
0: did it seem to work? Nothing
1: else whether it worked I mean it's all now outdated science because it doesn't really work it's like going on a fast of any kind and if you go on a fast in a beautiful alpine environment you might end up feeling better But uh, I don't think it was an effective cure for uh, tuberculosis, but maybe for other things. People leaving the cities, going to the country to take a cure, it might have helped.
0: You also write about the meat strike of the early 1900s. Uh, Did that help uh, the dairy, the rise of the, the dairy restaurants?
1: And, yeah, and was it's it one of the factors, the contributing factors that I point out. Around 1905, there was a lot of problem with um, the people who dealt in kosher meat. And uh, it's a kind of really unpleasant history of, uh, I guess. You know, rabbis trying to augment their income by becoming certifiers of uh, kosher meat. And a lot of corruption became involved in both meat and the poultry industry. There are lots of books about that.
0: And then uh, I imagine that so, up in Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, which exposed the horrors of the meatpacking industry, uh, also probably played a role.
1: Yeah, yeah, that 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 was translated and serialized in the Yiddish Uh, forwards uh, very early on and people were reading that so that that helped popularize uh, non you know alternatives to meat-eating that definitely played a part in it
0: so how many uh, of the there there used to be dairy restaurants all over the city first it was the Lower East Side then some popped up in in uh, the Bronx and in Brooklyn and, and Queens uh, how many are left now? As far as I'm concerned, I only know of B&H on 2nd Avenue in the East Village and Yona Schimmel's Knishes on, on East Housen Street.
1: Yeah, I mean, Yona uh, Schimmel's is one of these cases of a bakery that put a few tables in and added um, sour milk to their menu and became sort of a a dairy restaurant. But there, there are some... Uh, left in Orthodox Jewish and Hasidic neighborhoods, and quite a few of those would be labeled kosher pizzerias, and I think those exist also in Midtown. They're not specifically um, using a um, Eastern European menu. They're more like a Mediterranean and Israeli-facing menu. Pizza, middle, all kinds of Middle Eastern, uh, vegetarian dishes. So those are technically uh, dairy restaurants, but just not of the Eastern European. uh, The
0: Eastern uh, European ones you mentioned earlier, blintzes, pierogi, knishes, borscht.
1: Those sort of still exist.
0: Although you don't see mamaliga as much as you did in the past. Uh, That's a kind of a polenta with cheese dish. Uh, Yeah, that's a Romanian
1: dish that was kind uh, of a standard on dairy restaurant menus. And, uh, you know, I, I think Jews, especially of the second generation, once they were exposed to world cuisine, uh, these dairy dishes, which were very, a lot of them were very simple things, like a plate of uh, noodles with farmer's cheese uh, and a pat of butter, these things didn't seem quite as appealing anymore. Uh, So they would slowly fall off the menu. Uh, Restaurateurs mentioned how they would slowly just discontinue certain dishes. I was just uh, about a few months ago at the B&H, where I always would have gefilte fish. They had their own homemade gefilte fish when I went there in the 70s and 80s, and I asked the uh, counterman if they, if I could get that. And he said, we haven't made gefilte fish here for 25 years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's the standard, a very, very standard dairy restaurant dish. And that's just gone. They just, the call, the demand for it vanished.
0: Now there, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to cover a couple of things. The decor was generally Spartan. Uh, shiny metal, white surfaces, was that for practical reasons or also to give a sense that they were clean and healthy?
1: Yeah, both, that was kind of picking up on the American dairy lunch, that that kind of um, sanitary environment that was, uh, I, I trace it back to the the milking house of a dairy farm where there were tile walls, uh, like early child's restaurants were white tiles, uh, But uh, the other angle to that is that um, Eastern European Jews, if they didn't want to evoke a Romanian wine cellar, there was no ethnic decor they would want to um, evoke. And so the uh, the dairy restaurant was kind of an internationalist uh, decor in that sense. It could be anywhere. And it was more about cleanliness and efficiency. Uh, and I liked that too, about them, that they weren't trying to evoke another country, but they were very much of of the play of New York.
0: Wasn't another aspect of the restaurants that they were often gathering places for political discussion, like coffee houses and and cafes? Um, I remember some of the, the the ones that were when I grew up in Williamsburg, they were places where left-leaning intellectuals would gather.
1: Yeah, well, they were affordable places to eat. There was a place I talk about, um, Goodman and Levine's on East Broadway, which was the hangout of the younger this group of modernist Yiddish poets. And they were penniless. They barely could afford a cup of coffee in this place, but it would become their hangout. Uh, most um, dairy restaurants later on uh, they served the general public. Uh, I think people it would be hard to only eat in a uh, communist-oriented restaurant by 1940. Uh, there were you know they advertised in the Freiheit, and they'd advertise also in the Forward. Uh, there's some I have some. Evidence that a Rappaports on Second Avenue hosted a few parties for the IWO—that was the uh, the Workers' of the Order, the International Workers' Order, which was kind of a Yiddish language communist uh, labor uh, group. So, you know, there may have been some awareness of that.
0: But, but then we have the early just one cafes, minute left. We have just one minute left. Do you think Uh, that uh, the the ones that we have now will uh, be able to survive the the closing down? Will B&H be back? Oh,
1: I think all small businesses are going to be in trouble. Uh, The question of whether these things can physically survive a place that serves dairy, anyone can open a dairy restaurant if you have the money to do it. I think the thing that will be missing are these working-class connotations and that atmosphere. That's something that's a little bit more complicated to uh, revive.
0: Ben Katch's book is called The Dairy Restaurant, published by Shanken. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today.
1: Oh, great. I'm a great uh, great fan and supporter of BAI going back to the 60s. Before the Uh, Internet, there was WBAI. That's where everyone went to connect with people. So well, let's great hope that... To have you on BAI.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, executive producer Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at wbai.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopit at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, at com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And a reminder, if you want to write in and talk to me, uh, about any of the shows you can write to my email address LondonLopate at wbai.org before i sign off today i want to take a moment to ask you for your support one last time for wbai all independent media are in a difficult position because of the pandemic but as a small public radio station we are uh, in, really uh, in a particularly difficult spot so we're asking you to go to your phone 516-620 3602 to help keep WBAI and Leonard Lopez on the air. And remember, if you become a BAI buddy, you can also join us for dinner with Leonard. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or our website, give to WBAI.org. We're off for the next few days, but we'll return on Monday when Robert Kolker will discuss his book, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. We'll see you then.